Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NABIP Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Benefits and Insurance Professionals. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NABIP's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your healthcare happy hour. Earlier this week, a federal appeals court issued a stay on a lower court ruling that struck down provisions of the ACA's preventive care mandate while it reviews the case. Meanwhile, NABIP submitted more written testimony to congressional committees this week on a variety of topics, including direct primary care and hospital consolidation. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, Marcy Buckner is back to discuss the ACA case and its implications along with details of our statements for the congressional record. So, Marcy, let's talk ACA. The stay that I just mentioned applies to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling from the end of March that struck down the ACA's preventive care mandate. So, for those who don't recall or were not aware of this, would you mind summarizing that ruling? Yes, Dan. So, when this happens, when we see a ruling come out from a lower court, which is what we saw at the end of March with that court with Justice O'Connor in Texas, then oftentimes when a ruling comes out from a lower court and it's leading to an appeal, which happens many times after a lower court ruling, then we see an appellate court that provides, in this instance, it's the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, that releases a ruling that's called a stay. That means whatever law that is being challenged, even if the lower court overruled the law that's being challenged, that that law, in this case, the ACA preventive care mandate will stay in place while the challenge and the appeal is going through the legal process. So here, This is probably going to be a long haul. And because we're sitting in May, it is a good decision. NAVIP has has felt in the past when we've seen these stays being released, as we've seen challenges to the ACA, that in order to, to maintain certainty in the market and to prevent disruption, that these stays allow for the current markets to hold tight while some of these pieces move through the courts, and then we're able to make larger changes on the other side once we do have a decision. So similar to once we did have a decision on whether the states were mandated to create their own state exchanges, or if they may create their own exchange instead of shall create their own exchange. And similar with uh, other challenges where we had the challenges to the employer mandate, and then that was supported by the Supreme Court. But meanwhile, while that was being challenged, we didn't take those pieces back until we got to a final decision. What exactly about the ACA is being challenged in this case, legally speaking? So there are a few challenges here from the plaintiffs. The plaintiffs make up a number of different entities from employers to individuals who feel that 
their religious freedoms have been violated because of the ACA requirements that require certain preventive care treatments to be covered by health insurance. So the plaintiffs feel that because they are required under the ACA to have health insurance coverage, that being required to buy this coverage that includes coverage for things like the drug PrEP, which is an HIV prevention drug, as well as things like contraceptives and others, that these violate their religious freedoms because these types of preventive treatments would allow for activities that go against their religion. They feel as though it promotes promiscuity and homosexuality, which are not tenets of their moral beliefs under their religious claims. It also goes a little bit further and claims that the entities that put together the list that needs to be included for coverage for the preventive care do not have the authority to basically put together something that has the weight of law. And there are three different groups that the ACA set up in order to look at what needed to be included in the preventive treatments. One of these groups was already in existence um, prior to the ACA. Others were put into place after the ACA to be able to look exactly at this issue. And it's the groups that look specifically for this are the Preventive Services Task Force, or PSTF. We're going to use a lot of acronyms here that we don't normally use, so stay with me. The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, that's ACIP, A-C-I-P, and HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration. So the plaintiffs are saying because these entities are not specifically appointed by the president or voted upon by Congress, that they violate what is called the appointment clause and are not entities that can suggest what goes into being a final law that citizens of the United States have to follow. So those are the major tenets of this challenge. Along with some of the preventative measures that are being challenged because of the religious freedom aspect that some of the plaintiffs are arguing, it would also impact some of the USPTSF recommendations for other types of preventive care. So this would take away anything that the USPTF recommended after 2010. And those include certain cancer screenings. Over the years, the recommendations for cancer screenings have changed and included different and lower age groupings for certain types of cancer screenings. It would also include preventive medications for chronic conditions, such as cardiovascular disease, disease, counseling on health behaviors related to nutrition and weight management, alcohol and drug use, tobacco cessation services, screening for depression, and certain prenatal services. So what are the next steps? Does this mean that the ACA will be returning to the Supreme Court? It is very likely that we will see the ACA returning to the Supreme Court. And remember, there. The Supreme Court sits for a certain period of time during the year. In October, they usually choose what has been what has been filed with them that they will hear in their following year. It's not likely that we will have an appellate decision from this decision 
by that time for the Supreme Court to be able to take it up. So it may not be until 2025 that we have a decision on this. In the meantime, because we have this stay, that means that employers are still required under the law of the ACA to include these preventive care treatments in their qualified health plans. Let's talk testimony. We submitted two pieces of written testimony to the House Ways and Means Committee this week, one on price transparency and another on anti-competitive practices in the healthcare industry. We discussed in detail most of NABIP's transparency priorities during the May 5th edition of the podcast, but there is one new section we included in this week's testimony that we hadn't discussed previously, a section on direct primary care, or DPC. Why did we mention DPC in our comments? What about DPC does NABIP support? We included DPC in our comments because we know that Chairman Jason Smith has an interest in direct primary care and is working on a bill that he was hoping would be able to be discussed at this hearing, but wasn't able to to get everything put together. So we're trying to get ahead of that so that we can be part of those conversations and show ourselves as a resource for direct primary care. And really what we're asking here is for consumers to be able to use their HSA funds towards their subscription for direct primary care. When it comes to primary care, there are three options, direct primary care, traditional primary care, and concierge medicine. Under the current rules, consumers are able to utilize their HSA, HRA, or FSA healthcare accounts towards traditional primary care and concierge medicine. A traditional primary care provider's main source of revenue is that third-party reimbursement billed through a patient's health insurance issuer. For concierge providers, they bill a patient's health insurance issuer for payment for services rendered too, but those concierge doctors also charge patients an annual fee, which is usually around two to $3,000 for expedited access to the provider. Then the third type of primary care model is the direct primary care model, which involves a fully independent provider who does not accept any type of third-party reimbursement. Instead, DPC payments all come directly from individual patients or families. And this is because direct primary care is not defined as an insurance product under a certain section of the law. I won't get so nerdy that I'm rattling that off to you. But this is what is preventing patients from being able to use their HSA or HRA towards the monthly membership fee. And it's limiting the access that patients can have to access direct primary care. So this is really what we emphasize in our comments. We know that effective primary care is well known to be one of the critical components of overall personal wellness. And while the DPC model has gained popularity over the past 10 years, we want to make sure that we're being able to allow employees and individuals continue to gain that access to higher quality care and a patient experience that exceeds what is typically available through traditional primary care practices. In our other testimony on anti-competitive practices, we focused heavily on provider consolidation. So what did we say there? We suggested that in order to ensure that healthcare services are affordable for Americans, that the actors in our healthcare system must engage on a free and level playing field. 
consolidation of care has become a prominent issue in the American healthcare market over the last two decades. Overall, almost 2,000 hospital mergers were announced between 1998 and 2021, reducing the number of hospitals from about 8,000 to around 6,000. As more hospital systems merge, consumers' care options decrease and the prices they pay increase. A transparent and competitive market is vital to keep prices reasonable for consumers, as well as for consumers to have the ability to choose their provider based on a variety of price and quality metrics. This directly impacts price. For example, hospital systems that do not have any competitors within a 15-mile radius charge prices that are on average 12% higher than hospitals in markets with four or more competitors in the same radius. Additionally, analysis of all hospital mergers between 2014 and 2017 found that mergers of two hospitals within five miles of one another resulted in an average price increase of 6.2%. And that price increases continued for at least two years after the merger. Studies have proven that these troubling patterns hold true even when looking at nonprofit hospitals who routinely exercise market power in the same way that for-profit providers do. And Dan, while hospital mergers are the primary factor behind physician consolidation, private equity has also played a significant role in the market over the last decade. Private equity firms invest in businesses by purchasing a majority stake with the goal of increasing the value of the business and then potentially selling it at a profit. And physician practices have proven profitable for many. One study found that private equity firms acquired 355 physician practices from 2013 to 2016. And the speed of these acquisitions increased over the study period with 59 practices acquired in 2013 and 136 practices acquired in 2016. In the wake of the CAA, which banned the practice of surprise billing by providers, private equity groups spent over $50 million in television and internet advertisements in an effort to weaken the reform. So NABIP in our testimony suggested that Congress take action to control the pace of provider consolidation and the pricing problems posed by that practice. We also talked about the importance of transparency for PBMs or pharmacy benefit managers. So what did we say there? Yeah, PBMs are getting a lot of attention in Congress right now with a number of different hearings scheduled in multiple committees. So here we suggested that another way to stimulate a more competitive market would be to increase transparency in PBM practices. Oftentimes, PBMs can help control prescription drug costs for consumers, as well as work on behalf of self-insured employers to temper drug spending and make sure that employees have access to certain medications. But some opaque PBM practices have raised questions as to how much the entities are actually saving consumers and whether greater transparency requirements would increase those savings and have those savings really passed on to the employer. Many large PBM contracts do not include details on the rebates, prices, fees generated from manufacturers, or other charged amounts, so the employer doesn't have access to that. Additionally, PBMs are not currently required to disclose clinical data used to decide which drugs they add or remove, 
from a benefit plan, despite the fact that this information would be vital to an employer who is deciding which plans to offer to their employees, as well as to an employee who relies on the treatments that may be in question. And this is something that we discussed at length with Secretary Azar a number of years ago, specifically the fact that when employers are using a PBM, they're entering into this contract, but they don't know which drugs they're receiving these rebates on, and they don't know how much the rebate will be at the end of the year. So it can be really difficult for employers at times, if they're counting on having a rebate, they kind of have to guess based on the rebates they've earned in the past, without knowing that their PBM could have changed the formulary that they're using for which drugs are getting rebates on. Meanwhile, their employee pool could have changed the treatments that they're relying on. So they may not align and an employer could see a situation where they may may not see the same amount in rebate that they traditionally have and it could cause problems with their budgeting. But aside from that, PBMs also engage in what's called spread pricing, which is when a health plan contracts with a PBM to manage their drug benefits, and then the PBM keeps some of the amount paid from the health plan for the drugs instead of including the total amount paid to the pharmacies. This creates that what we call spread between the amount paid by the health plan to the PBM and the amount the PBM pays to the pharmacy. The PBM then profits from the spread. However, this increases the cost to the payer, which under the current law has not agreed to spread pricing. What we're suggesting is that if were PBMs required to disclose that spread and allow the payer, the employer, the option to agree to the difference, many people believe, NABIF included, that many employers or payers would either opt out of the spread or negotiate a better deal with the PBM, which could lead to lower costs. NABIP supports fair and transparent PBM practices, and we believe uh, giving the employer the choice of whether to engage in spread pricing really allows for PBM practices to help benefit employers and consumers in, in attempting to lower those prices. It is now time for the NABIP Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. So, Marcy... Who are we toasting to this week? This week, we are toasting to Mo Abdulaziz, our digital production manager. Mo started off at NABIP in the government affairs team and has done so much to support our advocacy efforts here at NABIP, both from his work on the team to then helping to develop items for our conferences and capital conference, and also putting together many of our digital production pieces um, that you'll see coming out in our new Medicaid Unwinding library of resources on the website. Mo will be leaving us at the end of the week, and we just want to thank him and toast to him for his years of hard work at NABIP. Cheers! Thank you for joining us for NABIP's Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Benefits and Insurance Professionals. For more information on NABIP's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit nabip.org.